From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. This week, we speak with Egyptian scholar and journalist Dr. Hossam El-Hamalawi about Egypt's role in the senseless genocide currently conducted by Israel in Gaza. Khalil Bendib spoke with Dr. El-Hamalawi. Hossam, ever since October 7th, Egypt has been constantly in the news. For historical context, can you first tell us briefly how the Gaza Strip came to be and Egypt's role in its very existence following the Nakba? I think most of your listeners by now probably know a thing or two about the geography of the Middle East since it's in the news all the time. Gaza is on the eastern border of Egypt. It shares a border with the Sinai Peninsula. And back in 1948, with the Nakba and the creation of the State of Israel, the Egyptian state ran Gaza from 1948 till 1967. It was under uh, an Egyptian administration uh, at the time. And then with the 1967 war, Israel occupied that strip in addition to the Sinai Peninsula and the West Bank and the Golan Heights. Afterwards, in the 1973 war, uh, which uh, in the West is known uh, as Yom Kippur War, basically the Egyptians managed to liberate a tiny strip of the Sinai Peninsula and then engaged in uh, negotiations with the Israelis for a peace treaty. Since then, the Gaza Strip has been under Israeli occupation up until 2005 when the late prime minister and war criminal Ariel Sharon decided to disengage and evacuate from Gaza unilaterally and reached some agreement with the Egyptians under Mubarak at the time to step up their security presence along the border with Gaza. Now, another milestone or another uh, important date that your listeners should probably be aware of is 2007. That's when Hamas took control of the Strip after infighting with Fatah. Now, the background for this, it's quite long, and I think it would be beyond yes. the scope. No, no, I just wanted episode. a very brief yeah. picture, because unlike its other neighbors, Palestinians were never able to really migrate in mass numbers into Egypt, like, like happened with uh, Lebanon, what happened with Jordan and Syria. So it's a special status that this Aza Strip has had over the years. With Egypt's assistance, Israel's been literally starving the Gazans, cutting off food and other necessity. What if Egypt decided to let the trucks in without Israel's permission? What would happen? Would it be able to do that? That's a very good question. In the media, the Egyptian regime publicists and spokespersons, they say that we cannot let the trucks in or else Israel will bomb them. This is rubbish on so many levels. We can say that at least for a start, in previous wars, Egypt never asked for Israeli permission to let aid convoys into Gaza. 
But the current regime, on the one hand, it's very weak because Cairo has lost its regional or much of its regional clout and influence. And on the other hand, the regime is complicit. The regime took Israel's side in the 2014 war, for example, and Egyptian media was inciting against the Palestinians. And literally, they were cheering Israel, more or less. And since then, although relations improved relatively between Cairo and uh, Hamas, and I'm saying here relatively, the siege continued. Egypt controls the only passage out of Gaza that's not, in theory, controlled by the Israelis, which is the Rafah crossing. The siege was tightened. And since the start of this war, basically, the Egyptians said that we cannot let the trucks in or else the Israelis will bomb them. And as I'm talking to you, few hours before our interview, Egypt has declared that its air force has dropped supplies in Gaza together with the Qatari Air Force and the French Air Force. And this drew like wide ridicule from many Egyptians and Palestinians on social media and elsewhere, because everyone is saying, why can't you just open the Rafah crossing? Uh, yes, <laughs> exactly. And, and if you're afraid that the Israelis will bomb the caravans, so... How come they didn't bomb your planes out of this? So it's a nonsensical justification for not sending the aid in. Cairo is simply complicit. Hussam, according to certain sources, desperate families in Gaza have been raising money online to pay Egyptian middlemen who charge thousands of dollars to secure passage through the Rafah crossing to try to leave Gaza and reach safety. Given how impenetrable the Gaza-Egypt border is, how do people manage to get to get out, if any, if any people manage to do that? The story of the bribes in order to get out of Gaza has gained international attention uh, recently. On the one hand, due to the war, and on the other hand, because investigative journalists have basically published about this whole process, which was not really secretive, and everyone knew about it in the Middle East, but somehow it never really garnered international attention previously. Maybe your listeners should remember this name, Ibrahim al-Arjani. Ibrahim al-Arjani is a Sinai Bedouin, Previously, he was involved in smuggling and he was wanted by the authorities. And then he was uh, imprisoned and this was under Mubarak. And when he came out of prison in unexplained circumstances, suddenly he became an ally uh, of the state. And he was doing so much of the dirty business for the military and for the Bukhawarat, or the General Intelligence Service. And he reinvented himself as a businessman. He has the, for example, the official local franchise for BMW, the automakers. He sponsors Al-Ahli Club, which is one of the most famous Cairo sports clubs that we have. He's involved in all sorts of ventures here and there. He has a monopoly 
over the export of construction material to Gaza that was used for building and reconstructions after the war. And last but not least, he runs this company called Hala. Hala, which means, you know, hello or hi, you know, I mean, Arabic or welcome uh, mm -hmm. in Arabic. And it, it is through Hala that basically he's been fixing the exit of Gazans in exchange for huge sums of money that are being paid for the Egyptian security services. So he's the middleman in this. And one more important information about this guy, he is the founder of the so-called Sinai Union of Tribes, which was an auxiliary militia that worked with the Egyptian army during the counterinsurgency in the peninsula over the past uh, decade. And its members have been implicated in some of the most horrible and grotesque abuses in this war that included summary executions, that included torture, and all sorts of other things that have been well documented by Human Rights Watch and other international rights groups. And just like the case, you know, with the Israelis now, actually most of the evidence was filmed by those tribal militiamen who used to like take videos on their mobile phones of their trophies and their executions because they were proud of it at the end of the day. And it is this guy, Arjani, who was running this militia. And it is his company now that is building or erecting this concrete wall to create a security buffer zone just in case, God forbid, you know, the Palestinians are pushed into Egypt with this coming Israeli onslaught on Rafah. That was my next question. What is this story about the concrete walls? And what are the Egyptians thinking? What are they doing? Uh, so you're saying it's not even the government itself that they subcontracted this project to him? The Egyptian military has subcontracted this project to Arjani. So all the heavy machinery that has been filmed moving around and building this concrete wall, it, it belongs to Arjani. And he's also involved in fortifying the existing border that is right now, I mean, that, that exists between Gaza and Sinai, in addition to building this concrete wall. And again, I mean, it's not the first time that the military depends on him to do its dirty business. But definitely with this war, things have been taken to the extreme. Hussam, after heroically resisting Israeli expansionism for decades and fighting three wars with Israel, since January 1980, Egypt has surrendered and led a collaborationist Arab accommodation with Israel, abandoning the Palestinians to their fate. And sadly, so have many other Arab regimes has done the same since. A process that was accelerated by the Trump administration six years ago. Except for non-state actors such as the Houthis and, and Yemen, and to a certain extent Hezbollah and, and Lebanon, Arab countries since October 7th, have shined by their absence in this one-sided war, if we can even call it that, it's a massacre. Never before in 76 years of Israeli colonialism have Arab governments so completely given up, even on lip service when it comes to solidarity with Palestine. 
South Africa and Latin American countries such as Colombia, Chile, and Brazil have shown more empathy for the Palestinians than all of the Middle East and North Africa put together. What do you think explains this radical degree of betrayal? Whatever happened to the old notion of Arab solidarity? let alone human solidarity. Well, to start with, I don't think that the Arab regimes were ever sincere about supporting the Palestinians from early on. It is true that things are getting worse, but the Palestinians for the Arab regimes, even back in the day in the 1950s and 60s at the height of the anti-colonial struggles, the Palestinians were always regarded as a source of threat as a source of instability, as a source of like a thorn in the Arab regime's sides and impediment towards the rapprochement with the U.S. So even when the so-called progressive Arab regimes championed the Palestinian cause, Nasser still went and, and, and arrested Arafat and and his colleagues when they tried to uh, start an armed struggle in the 1950s, for example. Yeah. And they created the PLO not for the liberation of Palestine as much as to control the rising militancy of the Palestinians. But it is the Palestinians who imposed their will eventually after the Arab regimes were exposed in 1967 and then the Fatah guerrillas uh, fought heroically in the Al-Karama battle in 1968. And they inflamed or they acted as a source of inspiration for the Arab masses. So the Arab regimes had to come to terms and allow for a role for the PLO to play. But they were never sincere about the Palestinian struggle. What Sadat did with the um, rapprochement with Israel that turned into a peace treaty and then like giving up completely on uh, on even the lip service, you know, of the liberation of Palestine. Is that exactly. I mean, the, the peace treaty was was finalized in 1979 and Sadat was assassinated two years later and his assassins, you know, they cited his treason of the Palestinians as one of the main reasons for the operation that they had conducted. Mubarak took on on the same line and he positioned himself as simply the enforcer of Pax Americana in in our region. Egypt was the second largest recipient of, of U.S. foreign aid after Israel. The Egyptian military in specific receives $1.3 billion a year. And this is not simply because the Americans love, you know, the Egyptians. It's because Egypt used to be the main enforcer of American foreign policy in the region that rested on securing the borders of the state of Israel, ensuring stability, fighting any sort of anti-U.S. militancy, whether it's leftist or Islamist, and protecting the Suez Canal and securing the continuous flow of oil out of the region. This is why the Egyptian regime has been receiving the U.S. and international support, even when they were brutal and murderous and they violated the human rights of Egyptians day and night. 
And even when they were corrupt and they were enabling a crony machine that was basically eating up the resources of Egypt and distributing it to a tiny minority of businessmen who used to surround Gamal Mubarak, the son of Husni Mubarak, and then later the army generals, basically. So back to your question, I mean, why, why are they now so inept? I think they have always been inept, but they have been already on a steady decline since two or three decades ago, since the 1990s, when the Oslo peace process initially started. And what we're seeing today is the end result, and it's the natural outcome of such process. And perhaps the so-called Arab Spring has weakened them so much that they are now even more openly, overtly pro-Israel and pro-U.S., that they feel they have no choice. <laughs> They're yeah, all in. And, and They're you know, all... the irony is, like the revolutionaries of the Arab Spring, they were accused by those regimes to be Israeli spies and agents of, of Israel. Oh, of course. To the extent that Rabi al-Arabi was called Rabi al-Ibri, the Hebrew yes. uh, spring, the Hebrew not the Arab spring. spring. Yes. <laughs> and, but it's those regimes in specific who are in alliance with Israel. And if you want to talk about the Cairo regime in specific, never has been Egypt in that close to the Israeli apartheid regime. Even under Mubarak, who was a client of the U.S. at the end of the day, he still reserved a little bit of clout vis-a-vis Israel. But with Sisi, first, the Israeli lobby in the U.S. marketed Sisi and intervened on his behalf in order to unblock military aid after the coup. And they basically were marketing him in Washington and in the other European capitals as the man who can bring Egypt back into stability and fight terrorism, etc., etc. And Sisi allowed the Israelis to conduct airstrikes in Sinai against alleged terror targets which is something that never happened in our history, to allow the Israeli Air Force to operate on Egyptian soil. So basically, what you have is complete delirium, you know, it's complete psychosis when they accuse their dissidents of being agents of Israel, but they themselves are the number one agent. Yeah, it's the oldest trick in the book. You just project your own vulnerability and weaknesses and and depravity onto your adversary. Egypt has been, as we were saying, since Mubarak's rule, has been willing partner and accomplice of Israel's depredations against Palestinians, in particular towards the Gazans, keeping a cruel and debilitating embargo that has kept over 2 million people prisoner with nowhere to escape when Israel regularly starts to bomb them mercilessly. Egypt has never allowed mass numbers of Palestinians, refugees settled in Egypt, If Israel continues its genocide unabated, as it is doing now as we speak, will Egypt at some point be forced to finally let Palestinians in? And what do you suppose the Egyptian people's reaction would be to this sudden change of policy that all of a sudden the Palestinians are in, whether we like it or not? I don't think that the problem here is the Egyptian public as much as it's the Egyptian regime. From the start of the war, there has been 
widespread sympathy uh, with the Palestinians, even if that did not translate itself necessarily into continuous mass protests like what it used to be in the 2000s. But there are many reasons behind this. Number one is, of course, the severe repression, whose level we've never seen in our modern history, that of the one that we're seeing under Sisi. So the Egyptians from the start have been actually, uh, since you know I follow public opinion well on social media and independent media channels, everyone wants the Rafah crossing to be open. The regime publicists, of course, are trying to present Sisi as the protector of Egyptian national security and that he is trying to basically stand up against this Israeli conspiracy to to resettle the Palestinians in Sinai. That's why he's shutting down the Rafah crossing. But, oh, no, we're not shutting it down, but we're not just allowing people out and we are only allowing few numbers of injured Palestinians after we seek permission from the Israelis. So I don't think the problem here is the Egyptian public, but as for the Egyptian regime, it is dreading that would be like a nightmare for Sisi to either have the Palestinians resettled in Sinai or let alone even hosting them temporarily. And this has got nothing to do, of course, with him standing up to Israel or him trying to protect Egypt's national security and all of this rubbish. But basically, he regards the Palestinians as a source of threat, as a source of instability. And he explicitly said that in in one of his press conferences that if the Palestinians basically are resettled in Sinai, I will not be able to control their anti-Israeli activities. There will be armed activities against Israel, and that will cause us troubles. He's basically alluding to what happened in Lebanon and Jordan in previous decades. But what will happen if Israel attacks Rafah? There is no question. Definitely the Palestinians would overflow the border and, and break into Sinai. If I was Gazan and in their shoes, that's what I would do. I would try to escape and and run for my life. Last week, the Israeli chief of staff, the Israeli military chief of staff, in addition to the director of the Shin Bet, which is the internal security agency in Israel, they were in Cairo in order to meet with Abbas Kamel, who is the director of the General Intelligence Service, and with the Egyptian army senior brass in order to reassure them that if an operation happens in Rafah, that this will not lead to the Palestinians being pushed into Sinai. But I honestly cannot see any other way uh, around it. There are now more than one million Palestinians who are crammed up in this small corner Their backs are literally to the wall, which is the Egyptian border. Now, once Israel, with its genocidal campaign, extends its operations in full steam to Rafah, Palestinians will will either die or basically just jump, you know, I mean, on the fences and try to get into uh, Rafah. Now, what will the Egyptian military do? 
I mean, are they going to bomb the Palestinians? Are they going to like open fire on those Palestinians? I honestly don't think so. I, I mean, not that they wouldn't love to, but, you know, they just can't. They won't be able to stop the Palestinians. Apparently, repeated attempts have been made over the past four and a half months to try to persuade a usually pliant Egyptian regime to admit at least some of the population of Gaza into Egypt, but the president has refused. However, the Zionist juggernaut in Israel and its supporters in the United States are ready to use their limitless resources, and they aren't exactly used to taking no for an answer. Among themselves, they joke they have more money than God. Do you think that the Egyptian regime will eventually ban and accept some of the beleaguered Palestinian population as it finds itself forced to spill over the Rafah border? Is there some kind of magical price as these people, these arrogant people with, with endless budgets seem to, to think? Is there some kind of price at which Sisi and his economically bereft regime will relent and accept to take at least some of the Palestinians in. Maybe your listeners uh, should know first that at the moment Egypt is going through its the its worst debt crisis in its modern history. Yes, exactly. That you know that our foreign debt now has stopped over 160 billion US dollars. People are drawing parallels between Sisi in 2024 and Khedev Ismail or Khedev Ismail, whose uh, lavish projects, you know, is usually cited as the main reason for getting Egypt into debt and then later colonized by the British and the French two centuries ago. Does Sisi and Egypt have a price? As much as I would like to say no, but we are up against a regime that is basically willing as we say, you know, in colloquial Egyptian, if Sisi can sell his mother, he would sell it in order to get money. He will sell her, definitely. Yeah. And funny enough, he personally went publicly before in one of the conferences. And he said that if like, you know, if I can, uh, <laughs> if I can sell myself, you know, I would have sold myself. And actually... Yeah. Someone went ahead and put CC on sale on eBay. Uh, <laughs> Who would buy something like that? Yes. So does he have a price? I mean, he must have a price. But the problem is, this is not a transparent regime. You never know what's happening behind closed doors. But at least what went in the public up until now, that recently there has been some relief financial packages to the regime, because basically the international powers cannot afford more instability in the region at this point. So with the IMF, basically the IMF has decided to expand its loan to Egypt. And it's now, we're talking now about a loan that would reach 10 billion US dollars, like what's being reported now in the media. Sisi is also selling state assets as well as prime land to the Gulf countries so as to raise more cash. Last week, the Egyptian regime signed, uh, for example, a new deal with the Emiratis to give them large chunks of land on the northwestern coast 
in what was dubbed uh, the Ras al-Hikma project in exchange for over 30 billion uh, US dollars. A similar deal is being discussed with the Saudis about a prime piece of land in the Sinai. So he is not really cornered as much as he was like a few months ago. Actually, he managed to play his cards well with the outbreak of the war so as to basically extort some money out of the international powers. For how long will this continue? I honestly don't know. Is there anything that's happening behind closed doors? No one knows. I mean, at least up until now. But if he allows the Palestinians in, in his view, he will be opening the doors of hell. Because if the Israelis, who are the most advanced and the strongest uh, military in the region, would not conquer the Palestinians, then will the <laughs> pathetic Egyptian regime, you know, <laughs> yeah. manage to control them? Right. So, you know, this is something to keep in mind. He would love to sell, you know, I mean, Egyptians, if he could, he's willing to sell anything. He's willing to do anything for money. Hmm. But to allow the Palestinians and to start having camps in Sinai or to resettle some of them, or even if it was like the smallest numbers, that would be his nightmare. In the midst of the, this genocide, on the Yosef Stack feed, it says Egypt and Israel have come to a new deal on exploiting natural gas that is offshore of Gaza. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, the Israelis are stealing Palestinian gas and they are exporting it to Egypt and to Jordan. And Egypt now is dependent on these Israeli gas exports in order to generate electricity. Um, it, it is a very sad story and honestly my blood boils like whenever I read anything related to it because there was a time when Egypt was exporting gas to Israel under Mubarak for a very cheap price and this was mainly because of corruption and because Mubarak trying to carry favors with the US and then to make things worse now we are importing gas from Israel and yeah, you mean Egypt, Egypt. Yeah, yes, yes. I, I mean Egypt, yeah. And we are dependent on Israeli gas. And since the start of the war, there were few disruptions in the beginning of the war. But then Israel has announced last week that in 2023, actually the gas exports to Egypt and Jordan increased by 25% and that it will even increase more. So the partnership between the Arab regimes and the Israeli apartheid regime is not only about political and strategic interests, but now they are also in bed together having very close business partnerships and dependency ties between them. And based on stealing from Palestine, yeah, Based, the Palestinian yeah. resources that they mm -hmm. are extracting and stealing, they are selling it to the Arab regimes. One guy is under which minimal lip service has manifested itself in Arab capitals uh, has been the flurry of futile diplomatic activity centered in Cairo and Qatar to bring at least temporary cessation to the ongoing slaughter of the Palestinians. 
but never do we hear coming from the UAE or Jordan or Morocco or Egypt any thoughts of breaking off diplomatic relations with Israel, no matter how bad the genocide gets, which you might think is the easiest thing to do or the least they could do. On the contrary, even in the thick of Israel's genocide, business deals are being conducted with the, the UAE and Israel seems to be, that whole Abrahamic Accord thing seems to be booming. Almost seems as though the more Israel massacres and displaces the Palestinians, the more Arabian kinglets and despots embrace them and reward them with contract and sweetheart deals. Saudi Arabia, for example, has adamantly refused to abandon this project to officially recognize Israel. How do you explain this increasing desperation to cozy up to Israel as it accelerates this genocide in the most overt and hateful fashion? Is the divorce between the wishes of the Arab populations and the corrupt leaders so final that these regimes are completely impervious to the wishes of their own peoples? Or are they so confident in Israeli technology to guarantee an iron grip over their people that strong? Explain to us the, this disconnect that the worse Israel gets, uh, the more it's rewarded by the Arab regimes. Well, once you, you start perceiving those Arab regimes as part of the international or the global system, who are allies of the U.S. at the end of the day, who are corrupt, who are ruling by repression uh, at the end of the day, then you will find that the common denominator between them and Israel is much bigger than any common ground between those Arab regimes and their people. And they regard the Palestinians as a source of threat, as a source of instability, but more dangerously for them, the Palestinians always act as a source of inspiration for their people to start rebelling. In most of the turning points in Egyptian modern history, when it comes to dissent and revolutionary upheavals, there was always a Palestine connection, uh, whether it is direct or indirect. And, and it's not just in Egypt, but also for the rest of the region. For example, the 1977 bread uprising that we had in Egypt, when we had a two-day national strike, and confrontations in the streets with the police, and an uprising that was eventually put down by the military. It was the product of a long process of dissent that has been accumulating since 1968. With those who were spearheading the movement, they were alumni of the so-called the societies of the supporters of the Palestinian revolution in Egyptian universities. The 2011 uprising in Egypt was the long process of dissent accumulation that started with the Second Palestinian Intifada. When Arabs start to mobilize, I'm talking here about the Arab people, when they start to mobilize in solidarity with the Palestinians, they start raising questions about why our regimes are not doing enough to help the Palestinians? Why are our regimes not doing enough to stand up to America? 
why are our regimes actually complicit with the Israelis in the oppression of the Palestinians? So once you start understanding those dynamics, you will understand that if it's up to the Emiratis, they would definitely love Israel to nuke Gaza and just get rid of the Palestinians. It's in the interest of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to see Israel victorious and they would smash Hamas and the other armed resistance groups that basically has been causing all of this headache for the Arab regimes and for Israel over the past decades. So when you mentioned the Emirati regime in specific, now this one is the most hawkish and is the one that basically spearheaded the Arab counter-revolution that was launched after the Arab Spring in order to either defuse or crush those uprisings. The Emiratis and the Saudis, although they are not always on good terms, but they are now in charge of reorganizing this region with a new order that is for stability, that is Israel-friendly, that is business-friendly, in order to empower a bunch of royals who are ruling these countries and they don't want to see any revolutions a la Arab Spring and they don't want to see armed Palestinian groups that are upsetting their regional arrangements. If it's up to them, they want quiet, they want stability, they want to do business with Tel Aviv. That's what they want. Sam, one of the most striking things to me in the midst of all the horror of this genocide, which is being committed in front of our very eyes, is the social class dimension of this struggle. Almost everywhere, it seems to me, economic elites are unflinchingly behind Israel, come what may. Whereas worldwide, regardless of the pro-Israel propaganda they're being subjected to day in, day out, masses of people are overwhelmingly against the genocide. They want a ceasefire. This is manifest not only in Arab countries, but also in the USA, where an overwhelming majority are in favor of a ceasefire. And in Europe as well, even places like France, the UK and Germany, with their sordid histories against Arab populations. Even here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we see the same pattern. Uh, working class towns like Richmond and Oakland easily passing pro-ceasefire resolutions. But Berkeley, which is more gentrified, upper middle class and upper class, just has failed time and again to pass even the symbolic resolution in favor of ceasefire. Is this stark contrast along social class something you have also observed in Germany, where you are based? Needless to say, this also correlates with racial dichotomies in this country, where people being overrepresented among the poor are also more in solidarity with the Palestinians. I think the kind of polarization that the Palestinian cause specifically also with this war is triggering, I don't think that we've seen this level of polarization and radicalism and solidarity with a cause probably since the Vietnam War. Even the Iraq War, I would argue even when there was like mass mobilizations, that it wasn't as controversial and as polarizing as this current war is now with Palestine. 
And the kind of polarization, it takes several dimensions, but the most important one is class. I was just talking about the Arab regimes and their interests, how they actually interests are aligned with Israel. Now, what are those interests? It boils down to economic interests. These guys, they want business as usual. They want stability. They want to enrich themselves. And they don't want any social movements or armed struggles or revolutionary upheavals to upset the quiet and the stability and the order that they are trying to erect. And the same goes on a global level. Now, Germany, where I'm currently residing, many would say that it has a very unique case. The level of pro-Israel support here historically has been higher than anywhere else in the world. Even within the left. Exactly. Even specifically among the left, unfortunately. But here is the thing. The German political establishment has been firm and has been behind Israel without any sort of hesitation. But there is something that's happening beneath the, the surface and it hasn't translated itself yet or manifested itself yet in the traditional forms of politics, meaning like the parliament, the government, the cabinet, and what have you. The pro-Palestine protests here in Germany with this war is probably the biggest that this country has seen in its history. Now, I've been living here for a few years, but I'm citing here or referencing here more veteran activists who've been here for quite a longer time. The protests were never as strong as they are now. And several polls have been conducted recently by German media outlets, and it actually showed that there is a shift in public opinion here in Germany. It is happening slower than in other countries, say the US, for example, but we're getting there. And once again, this has got nothing to do with Westerners uh, suddenly believing in human rights, but it has to do with resistance. When you start resisting, you gain people's respect. In the same way that the Vietnam War, people did not suddenly become against the Vietnam War because they read a book about human rights or, you know, they attended some lecture. It's when the Vietnamese, when it became clear that there is mass resistance against the U.S. invasion, that's when public opinion started to shift. And I think that's what's happening with the Palestinians. People usually say that, no, you know, when Palestinians carry up arms, that's when they get uh, labeled, you know, as terrorists. But yeah, I mean, everyone who's resisting will, will get labeled as a terrorist. But it is only recently that people have started to ask and inquire and wonder, why are Palestinians carrying up arms? It's because they've tried everything else. They've tried all forms of peaceful resistance and didn't get them anywhere. And I can see that there is something in the air. Public opinion is definitely changing. It's very symbolic. When you see other causes like the young people worried about the future of the planet manifesting in solidarity 
with Palestine, Greta Thunberg on television, proudly wearing a kafiya, proudly and very overtly, very ostensibly wearing that kafiya. That tells you something. <laughs> and yeah. no comments when you see this on French TV or whatever TV, no comments from the <laughs> from the mass media carrying the image. You yeah. have to see it yourself. You see European farmers who have nothing to do with the Middle East, could care less about the Middle East, wearing kafiyas at their protests against injustice that's affecting them. That tells you something. I mean, it's, exactly. it's remarkable. It's remarkable. It is. The Palestinian struggle is impacting pop culture. It's impacting the political culture. And people, when they start struggling, they start generalizing about their struggles. They connect the for dots. Example, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for example, as I'm talking to you, you know, there are now strikes that are happening in Egypt. One of them is in the textile mill in Ghazl al-Mahalla, which is the historical hotbed of industrial militancy in Egypt, and few other companies. Now, when the management at Ghazl al-Mahalla basically uh, stopped paying the salaries to try to punish the strikers, among the reactions that I've read by the workers is that they started shouting, they are trying to starve us like what they are doing to the Gazans. <laughs> so people start drawing parallels right away between the Palestinian struggle and between their own local struggles, no matter how local it is at the end of the day. And finding the connections, finding there are connections there. Exactly, exactly. Finally, Hassam, uh, a few months ago, you initiated your own news service focused on Egypt's political news. Tell us a little bit about this new venture and uh, where interested listeners might want to, to check it out on the web. I have a newsletter that's hosted on uh, Substack. It's called Arabawi, which is the same name of the blog that I used to run. And I publish uh, weekly an Egypt security sector report, which includes basically the latest updates when it comes to Egyptian foreign policy, economy, and the security services. And on Thursdays, I publish political pieces that has to do with me reflecting on activism in the past 20 years from my own personal experience. And I invite your listeners to check it out.